You may be seated. Alrighty. It's a perfect thing because tonight I'm talking about, you know, fear and stuff. I'm going to feel for my now, so you know it's going to be applicable to me too, but awesome. So I thought tonight that we'd start off talking about what are you afraid of? You know, there are pretty some, some common fears that I think a lot of us probably share. Me and a lot, like 85% of the girls in my small group are like definitely afraid of spiders. Like there was this one year at summer camp where there was like spiders and like it went in Austin's backpack and it was a horrible situation and I already stepped in the crack. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, it, was, it was terrifying. So we're, we're afraid of spiders. You know, some people are afraid of needles, like shots that just sends them over the edge. But for me, probably my biggest fear is, some people say this is a, like an irrational fear. I'm going to disagree. This is a highly rational one, okay? There's much, you know, validity behind this. Um, so imagine you're in a porta potty, okay? <laughs> and you're doing what a person does in a porta potty. And all of a sudden, it gets tipped over on top of the door. Yeah, yeah, and you can't get out. And it's all tipping over on top of you, and you're in the mess, and it's gross, and oh, oh man. That is like the scariest thing that I can ever imagine happening. Bottom line is we have a need to calm our fears, right? We have a need to feel safe and secure. But we aren't the only people who felt that way. The Israelites were also afraid and had uh, a need for their fears to be calmed as well. Um, I'm going to be preaching for the book of Isaiah tonight. And Isaiah takes place in a time when God's people were in exile, and they were kicked out of Israel because they had sinned. They wondered if God could ever love them again and if things would ever be the way that they were. So turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. It says this. Or should I give you a second? Do you have your Bibles open? Do, do you just start reading? How do you do this? <laughs> Sorry, I'm so nervous. Okay, awesome. So it says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The, uh, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. Let's stop there. Our first point tonight is that the Father saves us. The, uh, so God knows his people, and he knows what they have to be afraid of. And he specifically, through Isaiah, addresses their fears. When it says, when you pass through the waters, that's referencing when God led his people through the Red Sea when he parted it, when they were escaping from the Egyptians. When it says through the rivers, that represents when they were crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And when it says walk through the fire, um, that's about when Daniel and all of his homies were locked in the fiery furnace, but yet they were not burned. Crazy. <laughs> Bottom line is that God knows his people, and he knows what they need, right? The Father saves us for his name. So imagine this. I mean, not really imagine. You don't have to imagine. You probably know about the, the horrible and the tear, the dreaded situation that is the group project. There are a few types of people in a group project, all right? So there's always the people that, you know, they do a little bit of work, and they pull their weight, and they're pretty fair along the whole way, but those people are few and far between. You know, I don't think I've ever been in one with them, but they probably exist, I guess. And there's always those who do absolutely nothing the whole time, and they still expect to get the same grade as everyone else, even though they put in no effort. They know that they think that they're going to get the grade that the people who pick up the slack do. And then there are always the last group, the slack picker uppers. These are the type of people that they know what needs to be done and who needs to be doing it by when. And even though they put in the most work and the most effort, they get the same grade as the person who did nothing. And I'll give you one guess as to what kind of project member I am. <laughs> I always say, every time I'm in a group project, like, all right, I'm just going to do my work and nobody else's because that's what's fair. You know, we all know what we need to do. I'm going to do my work, and if they want to sink their grade, that's fine. And then it gets to the end, and I'm doing, like, four people's work and, like, writing four papers and everything all at once because that's my name on the project, right? I am not going to let a project with my name on it get a bad grade. And... Um, sorry, <laughs> our relationship with God is kind of like that group project. We as humans tend to be the people that slack off and don't do what they're supposed to do anytime. And God is always the one who picks up all the slack for us. We don't have to wonder if he's going to do it or not because he's God. He will. It's in his nature to redeem. Redeem means to bring back to its original purpose. God is going to bring it back to what it's supposed to be. We are marked with the Father's name on us, and he will make sure what we, he has what we need to succeed. The Father also saves us, not just for his name, but because he loves us. 
Verses 3 and 4 say, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are honored in my eyes and precious, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. When it says Jacob and Israel, that's referencing and addressing God's specific chosen people, right? So back in the day it was the Israelites, but obviously us as Christians. We are God's chosen people. And a ransom is something that you've probably heard of, like in the movies or whatever, you know, like where they like kidnap somebody and they're like, give us $100,000 at this time to get them back. You know, that's what a ransom is. <laughs> I've never heard of a ransom in real life. So like, I don't know if that's exactly what it is, but you know, that's the extent of my knowledge on the subject. But so you're like, all right, big deal. God's going to pay in Egypt and Cush and Seba, whatever those are. I had to make sure I was pronouncing it right. That's how much Cush and Seba mean nothing to me, you know? So basically, in case, you know, I know some of you are probably like elite Bible scholars and already know, you know. Um, but for those of us that don't, um, Egypt and Cush and Seba, when you hear them, just think boo, all right? Cush <laughs> um, and Seba are countries that would have been considered Israel's enemies. God used them, though, to buy Israel back and bring them back to him. These are military powerhouses that Israelites would have felt beneath, but they are seen as worth all that Cush and Seba have. Why would God give a ransom like that? Because he loves them. It says in verse 4, not in verse 4, hang on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, It says, you are, or I love you, you are mine. God will never let one of his own stray too far. You will never be too far for God, citizens. Come on, somebody. (laughs) (laughs) um sorry my uncle is a pastor and he says that all the time and I just really wanted to say that so (laughs) so if I say come on somebody that's like can I get an amen you know all right back on the script anyway uh, (laughs) anyway God loves you too much to let you off that easily he will leave the 99 to find the one what would it take for you to believe that I know what you're thinking, but how do I know that he's always with me? What if I'm too far for God? Because I know that you're probably sitting there in your seat and you're like, man, but you don't know. You don't know, Tiffany. You don't know where I've been or what I've done. There's no way that he could still love me after everything that I am. But as it turns out, he can. (laughs) Um, Verse 5 says, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The Father is with us. And he is with us so much that he's going to bring us home. This text specifically references the east, the west, the north, and the south. So from all directions, everywhere on the earth, God is bringing his people back to him, no matter where they've been. And when the Bible talks about the east, when people are in the east, it represents when they've sinned and when they're far from God. So... You don't even have to be just like, oh, no, God, I love you, but I'm far away. When you were still awful and you sinned and you hated God, he brought you back. And he's bringing you back again every time. Uh, Yeah, all right, all right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he brings us out of sin. (laughs) So God saves us and he is with us for a purpose. He has a plan for what he's going to do to them or do with them, sorry. The text uses words like created and formed and made. Those are intentional words, right? This isn't something that just happens. You know, you don't like, like, oh, wow, I created something. You know, <laughs> God made them on purpose, and he knew what he was doing. Um, Psalm 139 says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. When you were just a little tiny, not even a baby yet. There's a baby in my house right now. I love babies. Um, <laughs> anyway, they're the sweetest, cutest little thing. And God made them. He had a purpose for you when you were in your mom's womb, and he has a purpose for you now. He intends to carry it out, and he will carry it out. So where are you going? What's coming up in your life? Maybe you're like me, and you're a senior who's leaving this community, and you're so sad. And maybe you're a little sixth grader who's just getting here, and you're like, what are we doing? And you're scared, you know? Or maybe you're like a ninth or tenth grader, and you're like, man, I'm not new, and I'm not leaving. I've been at this for a while. Nothing's really changing. Is God really working in me? Wherever you're going, friends, I can promise you, he goes with you. Wherever you are going, he's going too. The Lord goes before you, and he's not going anywhere. Friends, you're secure in the Savior. We have no reason to fear when we trust the one who is above it all and within it all. It's not Jesus take the wheel. He's always had it. All we have to do is just let go of it. Stop trying to drive when you can't see the whole road. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Just let God do what God does, friends. You're secure in the Savior. So what are you afraid of? You know, at the beginning we talked about all of my biggest, deepest fears and terrible things. But, you know, on a more serious note, some of my, like, truest fears come from a desire to be loved and a fear of lacking it. But yet, the one true king, the creator of everything, 
He says to me, you are mine. He claims me. No matter what I'm afraid of, he already knows what's going to happen. He can take care of me in every situation, and he will. He already has, and he won't stop. Every blessing and comfort that you could ever desire is waiting for you in the arms of the Father. So where are you running from, friends? What are you running to? Whatever you need, you'll find it in him. The search for safety and security ends now. He loves you. You're secure in the Savior. Okay, this is going to feel really repetitive, but I also have the same question. What do you fear? Um, as Tiffany mentioned, I don't think she quite got into the depth of it, but that moment in the cabinet, it was terrible. It was terrible. The spiders are definitely my biggest fear. Um, but I know for a lot of you, this can look different. This can look like a fear of heights, a fear of the dark, maybe even something as deep as death. Um, but what is that thing for you? What do you fear? What is that one topic that even the, what is that one thing that even the topic itself makes you shudder? Now, I know we were talking about spiders and heights and stuff, um, but I definitely think those of you who went to summer camp this year can agree that we can put some camp games up there on our list of fears. I'd like to point out Earthfall. That's definitely my top one. Um, Ultimate Octopus. But now I'll pose you another question. You know what you're afraid of, but what would make you fearless in front of that fear? If we're going back to the camp games, I'd probably say the most dominant team would make me confident in the face of my fears. I'd call up, I don't know, Chris Haney. I'd get Sam to come from Maryland to be on my team, maybe get a Gavin Kaiser. Simone is insane. So you know what you're afraid of, what would make you fearless? Who would you want in your corner to be fearless? Today we're going to be looking at Mark, but more specifically Mark 4, 35 through 41. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. All right, starting with verse 35. On that day when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The first thing we see here is that the disciples' fear led them to lose sight of their faith. In the first section, we see the boat is just filling up with water. There's no hope of getting out, and they don't know what to do, so they awake Jesus. The disciples' fear led them to lose sight of their faith. We're talking a tsunami here. I don't think that this scripture does it justice, but if you can imagine being in this boat, the waves are crashing into the boat, it's filling with water, and Jesus is over here sleeping, but you're like, okay, that's great, but I need to get out of here. If you've ever been at the beach, you've probably seen these signs that let you know that you're at a safe elevation, but these are nowhere around because they're legit in the ocean. So there's no hope of getting out, and they turn to Christ. And we see this in verse 38 where they say, But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is literally asleep, and the disciples are panicking for their lives. So if we are talking about fear, here we can maybe say that their core fear is death. The disciples aren't scared of the windstorm, rather the outcome. But notice that Jesus is the one commanding that they go into the boat and cross the ocean in the first place. We see this in verse 35 where it says, let us go across to the other side. The one person who knows everything and can tell you what is gonna happen before it does is also the one that suggests that they get into this situation. The waves and the windstorm are not out of his knowledge. He knows that it's gonna happen. And the disciples know that he knows this too. So why are they afraid? Why do they find themselves skeptical that Jesus isn't gonna save them? In this story, we see the disciples as fearful of the storm. But more importantly, we see them as fearful of the outcome of the storm. They have such a narrow view that they can only see the windstorm in front of them, and they fail to see that the God of the universe is sitting right in front of them. 
What they fail to see is that God is the one who knows that everything is gonna, everything happens before it happens. They awake him because they feared the windstorm, and that fear led them to believe that Jesus didn't care. We see this in verse 38 where he says, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So again, the disciples' fear led them to lose sight of their faith. The second half that we have is verses 39 through 41. So starting with 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The part where it says, and they were filled with great fear. This fear isn't of the windstorm, is it? In the first part, we saw that Jesus had already calmed the storm. The waves were scary at first, but they woke Jesus, and he calmed the storm. But they're still afraid. In verse 39, we see, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This great calm is referring to the idea that there's nothing left to be afraid of. In verse 40, we, say, we see that he said to them, why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. At this point, the storm is gone and there's nothing left to fear. But this isn't the same type of fear that they have now. At first, they were afraid of the windstorm as a form of being afraid. But now, they're fearing God. This fear isn't of the windstorm, it's a fear of God. A fear in the form of reverence. I mean, how could you not be afraid? Jesus literally calmed the waves with his voice. I don't know about you guys, but that's not something that someone just does. So I'd be pretty scared too. The disciples' faith was a result of seeing their ultimate fear. The disciples found themselves in deep reverence and awe of Jesus. Before going into the boat with Jesus, they knew of him. He was the Messiah, sent down to save us all from our sins. But I don't think that quite sank in with them. They knew of Jesus, but they didn't really know Jesus, did they? If they knew Jesus truly, they would know that he's a provider, a caretaker, a father, a friend, and a protector. If they knew Jesus to his full extent, they would know that he is a source of refuge and strength in times of trouble. Earlier, we talked about our biggest fears and what or who would make us fearless in front of those fears. In citizens, the answer is Jesus. If we fear God, there is nothing else that could surpass that. and We have nothing left to fear. If we know Christ, we know that we are secure. We find peace in knowing Jesus because he shows us that there is nothing to fear. So I ask you, citizens, do you know who Jesus is? Do you have a deep personal relationship with Christ? Do you truly believe that when the windstorms of this life come crashing head on, that you will be safe? When the conversation that you've been dreading comes up, do you believe that Jesus will resolve it in his perfect, all-knowing satisfaction? When things aren't great at home, do you know that Jesus will protect your heart? When you face conviction, do you know that Jesus will pull you out from one degree of glory to another? What are you afraid of? Does your relationship with Christ surpass that fear? Do you know Jesus? I've done it both ways, and I can say from experience that the root of knowing Jesus and having him on your side is a lot easier and a lot more peaceful than the root without him. We find peace in knowing Jesus because he shows us that there's nothing to fear. Thank you. Well, hey guys, like Courtney said, my name's Ember. I know a lot of you guys, so my name's Ember to those of you who don't know me. Um, tonight I'm going to be preaching in Romans, but I wanted to ask you guys a couple questions first, and you don't have to answer them right out loud. Um, you can answer them in your head if you want to, or you can just think about them. But I wanted to ask if you guys have ever been in a situation where someone has been rude to you or maybe someone's being more than rude to you and they're being mean and hurting your feelings. Or maybe you've been in a situation where, you know, your friends are just roasting you, so it's just a joke, but it actually kind of hurt your feelings. You just kind of are being torn down a little bit, persecuted, per se. Um, how do you respond? What do you think? What do you want to say to them? How do you want to respond to them? Another situation I wanted to ask about was if you've ever been in a place where 
you don't feel very happy, but your friend feels happy. You've had a bad day, and your friend has had a good day. You've won an award that you haven't got to win, but someone else got to win it. How does that make you feel? Does that make you feel bitter towards them, or do you still want to be happy for them? Or maybe it's vice versa, and um, somebody else is having a bad day, and you're having a good day. Maybe it's even your birthday, and someone's in a mood. Do you want to go down and be on that same level as them, or do you feel like, oh, maybe I should just be where I'm at, I'm happy and stuff. Um, I wanted to ask those because Paul in Romans sort of talks about those things. He gives us actually nine different commandments that are regarding this type of thing. Um, Paul, for those of you who don't know him, he is a missionary. He is someone who follows Christ. And the book of Romans is um, a whole letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ro- uh, to the Romans, who are all Christians, just like we're Christians, but they were also in a world full of sin, just like we are in a world full of sin. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans twelve fourteen, and we'll go to verse twenty one. Paul says, "Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them." Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is angry, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This first, this whole first part of this section, he talks about living in harmony with one another. He starts out by saying, "To bless those who persecute you." In the beginning, I asked a question related to that statement, to bless those who persecute you. Even though it's difficult in that situation when you're being persecuted, your inclination, your desire, it might be to not bless them. It might be to say something mean back to them or at least to think poorly of them and be angry towards them, even if you don't say it. But God actually wants us to bless them. He wants us to hope that good things will happen to that person that just persecuted us. So that's confusing, but that's actually what we're called to do. Um, He goes on to talk about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. When we are in that situation where someone got the award and we didn't, we're called to still be happy for them and not even just to like be happy, like pretend, but to genuinely be filled with joy that that person was got to be joyful. And then when we're in that other situation where we are having a good day and we see that someone is in need of someone to talk to, it's our job to go there and talk to them and be on the same level as them and be empathetic with them. Paul in verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not, be so, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Before Paul was still talking about living in harmony with one another, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep and not persecuting those, that's all signs of living in harmony. But then he directly tells us to live in harmony with one another. He tells us not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. Um, When you look at a group that is not living in harmony, you're probably going to find a group of people who are haughty and wise in their own sight. Um, If you've seen someone fighting before, you probably aren't going to hear things like, oh, you know what, you're probably right. Most of the time you're going to hear things like, actually, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm right. I'm right in my own sight. 
that's the kind of people that you'll find where people are not living in harmony. So he tells us not to be this way, but to actually associate with the lowly, to put ourselves on the same level and not think of ourselves, not be prideful, but to have humility and be on the same level as other people. He then says, he, he then says another example of how to live in harmony. Sometimes it might be just like hearing that thing and knowing what it is and what it isn't is kind of hard. Okay, well, how do we live in harmony? Paul tells us, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He tells us to repay no one evil for evil. So when we are evil is coming towards us, we're called to not repay that evil for evil, but to do thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So in situations with your friends, when someone is roasting you, um, you know, you might want to have a comeback. You might want to say something like, that's going to be a good roast back to them. And that might be honorable in the sight of your friend. It might be honorable in the sight of your sibling or somebody that is telling you you should do that. But think about if your parents were there or if your um, other leaders were there, if your teachers were there. Think about if that is going to be something that's honorable in the sight of all. He then says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I, it struck me when he said, so far as it depends on you, because the truth is that it doesn't always depend on us. We cannot always make it so that there's peace all around. I'm sure there's a lot of people here that are seeking peace, but still there's not peace everywhere in our world. Um, we're not the ones who are in control. So when we see things that are not just, it might make us want to make it just, right? It might make us angry. We want to have, it's okay to have that anger. It's okay to have righteous anger and want justice to be had. But we need to remember that it's not our place, actually, to um, be the judge and to make sure everything is peace. He says, to, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He then says, Beloved, never avenge, yourselves for e never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't have to live seeing these unjustice things happen, thinking that it's never going to be solved. Thinking, that person's just going to get away with that, and you just want me to just so far as it depends on me, but thankfully he says, beloved, never avenge, yourself, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. We have a God who actually has wrath, and he says that vengeance is his. So we don't even have to worry about it. That's even like a, that's a blessing from God. So you might be thinking, okay, leave vengeance to God, do peace, live in harmony as much as I can, so then what am I supposed to do? He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I've been in a situation before where someone was persecuting me. I might have thought them to be someone who is evil, or I thought of them as my enemy. And I was highly convicted by a sermon um, about loving your enemy. And I always thought to myself, oh, like, I, I turn the other cheek. I don't return evil for evil. Like, I wasn't even proud of myself that I treated this person the way that I did. But I was convicted on a sermon about loving your enemies because loving your enemies isn't ignoring your enemies. Loving your enemies is not just ignoring them and hoping that they get what they deserve somewhere else. Loving them is literally going and feeding them when they're hungry and giving them something to drink when they're thirsty. It's caring about them. It's sacrificing for them. And that might sound crazy, but that's actually what we are, as Christians are called to do is to love our enemies and to care for our enemies. <laughs> this next part says, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That might be a little confusing. It was very confusing for me. I was like, okay, so I'll be super nice to my enemies. So maybe, like, they'll be so mad because I was so nice to them when they were so mean to me. They'll be like, how is she so nice? This is so annoying. I, and, and then I'll get, I'll get justice that way. 
But actually, um, in Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 explains that in Egypt, it was custom to carry a pan of burning coals on one's head as a sign of repentance. So we are actually called to go the extra mile to be nice to them, to care for them, to love our enemies, to give them something to drink when they're thirsty and something to eat when they're hungry so that they might repent. They might live and see that you are being kind to them even when they were so mean to you and they go, oh, I need to change. Like, I, I see this. I, it's like they see God in you and they want to change. And that's what, that's what this is talking about here. And as Christians, if we truly are wanting glory to be given to God, then with our enemies, we're going to want them to see God. We're going to want them to repent and to become followers and not just get their punishment. This last verse wraps up pretty much everything in the most perfect way it possibly could. Um, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Throughout this whole entire text, it gives examples of what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to return evil for evil. We're supposed to go the extra mile. We're supposed to not um, persecute those who persecute us, but bless them. All these examples are overcoming evil with good. I wish that I could do that all of the time. I'm sure a lot of you guys wish that you could just overcome evil with good all of the time and just be perfect, but we actually can't. None of us can be perfect. None of you will ever be perfect, and I will never be perfect, but somebody else is perfect, and he came here and showed empathy to us and lived the life overcoming evil with good. Every, in every situation, in anything that he ever did, he overcame evil with good. Um, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in every single way that we've ever been tempted. He was persecuted so much worse than any of us will ever be persecuted, and he never sinned. He was tempted. It's not like it was a piece of cake. He was tempted, but never, ever sinned. And after he lived this life, overcoming evil with good and never, ever sinning, he died a death on the cross for us. So that all of these times when we can't overcome evil, we cannot overcome evil with good and we sin and we return evil for evil and we do all these things that we look at this and know, oh, I know the answer. I know what I should do, but yet I still do what's wrong. I still do what I know I ought not to do. And Jesus, after living that perfect life, he died on the cross so that we would not have to be held against our sins, that all of our sins would be free. He lived a perfect life and then died a death on the cross so that we, because we cannot live a perfect life, can still be free and can still be saved. The last verse says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So even though we are not perfect, we are given an example by God Peter 2.21 says, So to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are given this Christ for all of these reasons, but these are still instructions. We can't just say, okay, so we're good, so no biggie, it's fine. Jesus came and led an example for all of us to follow. Christians are little Christs. We're supposed to be people who are exemplifying Christ in everything that we do. So in these situations, even though it's hard and we want to do the thing that's not right, instead of, overcome, instead of being overcome by evil, strive to overcome evil with good. Testing, hello. Hello. Oh, yay, Bible. My mom and dad. Oh, so how's my, can you hear me? Okay, how's my hair, honestly? Because that is really going to affect, okay, okay, whew, okay. 
this is awesome. Um, so happy I get to do this because I get to glorify God, and that's all it's all about. So I don't care if I mess up because I can't. Darn right. Okay. So, do any of you guys, oh, we'll be reading from Acts, Paul, again. Um, do you guys ever feel compelled to share good news with someone? Whether that is a friend of yours or a stranger, even, complete rando. And, and what, if, especially if this good news could save their life, you, you would obviously share it, right? Like, nothing, nothing foreseeable could stop you from sharing this news. Well, but what if this good news that could save their life would also cost you your life? Would you still share it then? Would that be enough to stop you? You see, Paul had some good news to share, and it did cost him his life. But it was his mission to share it, and it is ours as well. So let's read Acts 20, 22 to 23. I didn't think about giving you guys time, but everyone else said it, so some time. Mother, father, do you have your Bibles out? Swing <laughs> sir? Okay. <gasps> the Hoovers and the Porters. <laughs> okay. So here we start. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So to summarize that, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that only troubles await him there. Now, he goes to Jerusalem because the Spirit of God compels him to do so. Our first point is our mission is to proclaim the gospel. Now, these imprisonments or afflictions, in your day-to-day -day life, you are going to meet those that do not follow or walk in a Christ-centered life. And that could be friends of yours or strangers, like I said earlier. For me, when, especially when I'm at school, and with my friends at school, my theater club, or theater group, theater friends, because I'm a drama geek, but yeah, my theater friends, I know very well that they do not know God. They don't know Jesus. And me, as the Christian of the group, it is my, I'm going to laugh, but because I can't say this word, but it's my, it's my duty to share it with them and to tell them. And you see, but, this is interesting to say because I don't want to say I'm fearful, but there's always the thought of what if they reject me? What if these people cast me out for sharing this news? I mean, it could happen. But then I also, I also think, what is this good news that I'm wanting to share with them? I mean, I'm sharing something, so why am I afraid of it if I need to know what it is? So earlier in Acts, Paul says it, in Acts 13, 38 through 39, the dude says, the dude, wow, he's 13. Okay, here we are. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who you could not Sorry. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. So, yeah. So, that is the good news that we have to share. And that is our mission to share. And it is our mission to share it. But is it worth it? I think so. And let's see why. Now, in Acts, I can flip this. In Acts 20 24, the last verse. It reads, now this was actually a scripture, I, or yeah, I had to memorize uh, last summer for internship here at the church, so it's pretty cool. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Our second, my second point is we must value this mission above our own lives. And I put an exclamation point because that above our own lives, like, wow. Now, we all have the same mission, but each of us has our own background, pathways that have led us here, and our own story to tell. Now, for Paul, a little backstory. Paul, it's funny, because Paul's mission 
bless you. I think that was the sneeze. Bless you. I was trying to figure that out. Okay, so Paul killed Christians. Paul's mission in life was to kill those that profess their faith in Christ Jesus. And you see, while he was on his mission to do this, he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I'd be thinking, yes, it's about to happen. God's going to be like, yo, why are you killing my, my people, my kids? And he's going to do something. But what God does is just, now this isn't necessarily about my scripture, but this is, is just so much truth and of what God is. But he, the Holy Spirit convicts Paul and redeems him. And he gives Paul the mission of bringing in people to his family. He he just he brings Paul along, and Paul is shown the grace of God, and as a result of that, Paul values the mission of proclaiming the gospel more than his life. <laughs> and so I have a couple questions, and that is, what do you all value? I, I've asked myself this, learning, studying these verses, is what do I value? And to put together our points, we have our mission is to proclaim the gospel, and we must value this mission above our life. And so together, it is our mission of proclaim, our main point is our mission of proclaiming the gospel must take priority over our own lives. And with that, more questions is, so like I said before, what do you value? But have you seen Jesus? Have you encountered the Holy Spirit? And if so, where has he called you to live this mission? How has he shown you? Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael. Um, <laughs> so I had the privilege of taking physics this year, which if you don't know what physics is, it's a science class, which apparently I found out is just complicated common sense. So one of the things I actually learned about was light. And apparently light travels in wavelengths. And these wavelengths, they come from a light source, like a lamp or something, and they bounce off of walls and, and, and collect these like colors. And then they come back and they hit our little eyeballs. And then our eyeballs send signals to our brain and we like see. So it's like, I kind of knew that I like saw things when there's like, you know, light in a room, but like I didn't know why. And it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So yeah, that's, that's physics. And um, I also learned that light, um, there's some materials that it can not go through, like a wall, okay? Uh, it bounces off, it can't go through that wall, but there's other things like glass that light can actually travel through. So now I want you to picture this big light source, we'll call it a sun, okay? And this sun <laughs> is God, okay? So we have this sun, this, this light source, it's God, and then over here we have this world. And without God, this world is full of darkness. It's full of evil and hate and sin and selfishness. Now, in between the two, I want you to picture a window, like a square, rectangle, window, yeah, whatever. And um, as believers, we are that window. And each of us, each of these windows has a curtain. And we have to decide for ourselves if we are going to choose to close that curtain and block God's light and then look just like the rest of the world, or if we're going to open that curtain and allow God's light to shine through. Because as you guys have heard tonight, our, our mission, we are called to, to proclaim the gospel. We are here to glorify God. And we need to choose God's joy over the world's darkness. Because as we choose his joy, that's when we open that curtain and allow his light to shine through. Which leads to my main idea, which is that we radiate God's light through a life of joy. And Paul talks about this. I'm going to be reading from Philippians um, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And in these verses, he is talking about the call to, to shine as lights in a dark world. So you can um, follow along if you are there, um, starting in um, verse 14. It says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. My first um, key idea is that open curtains allow God's glory to shine through. So we're met with a command immediately to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And these are just two fancy ways of saying complaining. Grumbling is an outward complaining shown by your actions and the things that you say. 
And disputing is an inward complaining. It's when you complain in your heart and in your mind. And so let's say, let's say your mom asks you to do the dishes, okay? And you're going to complain about this, right? If you were to, to grumble in this situation, you would probably do the dishes as aggressively as physically possible without actually breaking a dish. And maybe you would break a dish. If it, maybe it would go there. I don't know. I don't know how, how much complaining would be going on. And then the next day, you're going to go to all your friends and be like, yo, Jimmy, my mom made me do the dishes. Can you believe that? So you're going to go around and just complain about it to everyone, okay? That's what this looks like. And if you were to dispute, you might not say anything or, like, physically do anything, but in your heart and in your mind, you're just like, this is not fair. This, th these dishes are getting in the way of what I wanted to do with my day, okay? But ultimately, all complaining is complaining against God. Either way, all complaining is complaining against God because when we complain, we are upset with the circumstance that God has allowed us to be in. We are unwilling to do what he has asked us to do. And a lot of times we're upset with ourselves because there's this inner battle that we all have to fight each day. And it's when you have to either choose God's will or your will. And see, the world promotes that you, that you choose your will. But God is calling us to choose his will and to choose it joyfully. Um, let's see, where are we? Also found out my Bible is like really big, so like the Bible and the doesn't really fit, but it's fine. It's gonna work, okay? It's gonna work. So back to complaining. Why not complain? <laughs> this is good. There's there's plenty of room up here for everything. It's actually perfect. I love it. Um, so okay, we don't complain. Continuing verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we don't complain because we are God's children. And as such, we are called to live this blameless, pure, innocent life. These words mean to be without sin. And I read that and I'm like, whoa, whoa. I look at my life and I can't go a day without sinning, let alone five minutes without sinning. And he calls us to live this life without sin. Like, that's impossible. I'm full of, of hate and, and selfishness and lust and pride and a desire to, to do what I think is best for me. But God is calling us to something more. He's calling us to something that's beyond ourselves because we are living in this dark world amongst this crooked and twisted generation. And this means that we're living in a world that is against God and it's against the salvation that, that God brings. So we have to shine God's light. We have to ultimately glorify him. Because how can we glorify God if we look just like the rest of the world? If we just choose to do our own thing, if we choose to complain, to be a victim to our emotions, we're just a closed curtain. And darkness amongst darkness does not stand out. But as soon as we choose joy, we open that curtain and we begin to allow God's light to shine through. But what does that really look like? What does it look like to choose joy? Well, let's keep reading in the, the second half of verse 16. It says, holding fast, to the word of, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So this is Paul talking once again. Um, and basically what he's saying here is to, to run in vain is to live without purpose. But Paul knew his purpose. He's saying that, that living this life of joy is not in vain. And, and it says here, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if he dies for the faith, he is glad and will rejoice, and likewise, we should rejoice with him. What kind of what joy is this that compels someone to have joy, regardless of circumstance? See, he knows that he is God's child. He knows he doesn't have to fear, and he knows he's secure in the Savior. He knows that his purpose to proclaim good news is of more value than his own life. And this truth, this truth, it, it leads him to proclaim the gospel to glorify God, because God alone is worthy of praise. Earlier in Philippians, um, 
verses 8 through 11. He's talking about Jesus here, and it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee should bow, every tongue confess, at the name of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. See, we can't live this perfect life. We won't ever live up to that. But Jesus did. Just like Ember said, he did. He did live that perfect life. Every, every day, he chose joy. And he, he died for our sins. He lived that sinless life and then died so that we don't have to be sinless, but that so we can accept him and find a relationship with him. And in that, God sees us through what Jesus has done, and he sees us as righteous. And he doesn't see our sins. He forgives us of our sins. And that is worthy of praise. See, what Paul realizes is that his hope is eternal because of what Jesus already did. Not anything that Paul can do, not anything that we can do, but what Jesus did and what he's doing is where we find a hope that is eternal. And that hope leads us to joy because we know what God has done for us. We know what he's doing for us. And we know that it's not based on anything that we can do, but it's on what God has done. It's a joy that's not based on circumstance. It's a joy that's founded in a heavenly father who loves us. So I would ask you, um, I would want to remind you back to the, to the main idea. We radiate God's light through a life of joy. Well, I would ask you, do you have this joy do you have a joy that's founded in Christ? Do you have a joy that, that stays with you no matter what you're going through? Because you know that you're here for something that goes beyond yourself. It goes beyond your, your temporary struggle. You have a hope of eternity, and you, you find satisfaction in, in God alone. We all have a, a God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we try to fill it with what the world tells us to fill it with. And the world says, hey, you do you, and that's what's going to fill you up. But as we pursue that, we eventually come to a place where we find that we're just more empty than we were before. But God is calling us to his love for his glory and also for our own good. Because my second point is that open curtains experience the joy of God's light. So not only do we glorify God through, through living this life of joy, but we experience the benefits of having God's joy, of having a father that that already did all the work, that has saved us from our sins so that we can pursue this relationship with him, so that we can pursue a life of being his child. So then again, I would just ask you, do you have this joy? Because God wants you to have this joy, and um, it's found in him alone. Thank you.